Welcome to the November edition of Information's Crossroads podcast. I'm John Burke, America's editor for Information. Joining me today is uh, Brent Tazugi, uh, principal at AMP Capital. Uh, Brent, thanks for joining the program today. Happy to be here. Uh, AMP Capital uh, is a uh, global uh, infrastructure asset manager, um, which uh, sits upon uh, $12 billion in AUM across its different um, equity platforms for infrastructure. Uh, Brent, we uh, come across a very busy uh, 2019, which uh, could certainly uh, roll over into 2020 at this rate with um, the way funds are being raised. Um, Why don't you talk about where you see uh, the most opportunity uh, for today in terms of infrastructure investing, in particular, uh, looking at which sectors are really going to get a lot of attention um, as we uh, roll forward to 2020? Yeah. Um, well, look, I, I think uh, it's a great question and one that I think a lot of uh, uh, my colleagues and my peers uh, and others in the industry kind of spend a lot of time thinking about. Um, I think given uh, what we've seen in the market, um, both just in terms of the amount of capital that's raised as well as kind of the new entrance into into North America, um, I think it's caused a lot of us to focus a lot on asset selection um, and a, a lot around value creation. Um, but, you know, I guess taking a step back and thinking about uh, origination and, and kind of those sectors that we're particularly interested in right now, you know, I think it's, it's um, uh, not um, uh, totally surprising to to think that we're probably taking more of a defensive approach to to asset selection, really focusing on those sectors that probably have uh, a bit more um, defensive moats around them, ones that typically have acyclical characteristics. Um, and so I think uh, specifically an area that we are focused on uh, is the digital space. Uh, I think that the proliferation of, of devices, uh, of data, um, are leading, uh, and, and I'd say certainly the amount of underinvestment in those areas uh, are leading to quite a bit of uh, investment opportunity. And, and I think, you know, the market's awoken to the digital space and um, what used to be, I think, an area that kind of felt a bit fringy now is is very much mainstream. And so, you know, I think whereas a couple of years ago, there was probably a, a bit less competitive in that sector, we're starting to see a lot more interest uh, in um and a lot of new players. I'd say outside of the digital space, you know, and, and I group data centers, uh, fiber, fiber to the tower, um, um, and towers infrastructure kind of within that vertical. Um, I think that area within transportation and logistics that we like is really, I'd say, tied to food and food logistics. Um, and it, it just comes down to uh, the inelastic qualities of, of food, the fact that it really is non-discretionary. Uh, and so whether it's uh, cold logistics or cold storage, um, I think when you look at uh, the performance of that subsector kind of over many economic cycles, um, it's been incredibly resilient. And I think if you look forward to a lot of the secular growth around the space, be it from uh, the increasingly you know, organic uh, preferences and tastes of our mature economy, uh, and in turn, you know, the increased refrigeration needs of those more perishable products. 
or in the developing world, you know, the, in, in increased standards of living, consumer power, leading people to embrace kind of more Western, non-green-based diets, and it hence the need for more development of that infrastructure. I think that's a that's another area that we are are pretty keen on. Uh, very interesting stuff, Brent. Thanks for that. Um, let's start talking about the fundraising environment. Um, and maybe we'll get back to some of these sectors again towards the end of the program. Um, so we've, um, in our fundraising report uh, that we put out, uh, we uncovered that $41.9 billion has been raised from 24 funds over the first three quarters of the year. Uh, a drop-off from $57.5 billion raised by 35 funds uh, year over year. However, that uh, stat is completely misleading in the sense that uh, we should end the year on a pretty big high uh, because you have Brookfield and GIP, uh, Global Infrastructure Partners, uh, rounding third base, past third base on the way to raising two massive $22 billion funds. Uh, Brent, in, er- in your view, um, how are asset managers today creating differentiation? Um, is it more the case of specialization? Is it more the case of uh, creating a looking at different industries, such as well, how Digital Colony and GI Partners is approaching their round of uh, funds uh, with respect to digital? Um, what, what's your view on these things? Uh, you know, look, I, I guess um, as a starting point, I'd say that the proliferation of options and alternatives for uh, institutional investors is. I think people would bemoan uh, how much capital is in there, but I think when you compare how much dry powder uh, is available in infrastructure to other kind of private markets endeavors, there's still quite a bit more to go. Uh, and I think that the, the opportunity set is still big enough for all of us to, to do well and find kind of interesting opportunities and de- deploy capital. Um, I also think that the, as the range of alternatives have grown, it's, it's probably broadened the overall appeal of the asset class. Um, it, you know, it has enabled um, uh, institutional investors to kind of create a portfolio of uh, diversified exposure by, you know, perhaps buying a global manager, a large cap global manager here, or augmenting it with a, you know, small cap North American fund or, you know, a specialized digital partner. Um, and I think that that as that takes, you know, root and as infrastructure, I think, becomes um, even more ever present in the minds of our institutional investors, it'll only be good things for all of us as managers. Now, it, that, I mean, I think your question around how, how do you, you know, how do you stand out in the crowd um, is one that uh, I think a lot of uh, entrants, uh, both new and established, are, are, you know, I think evaluating. And um, what I would say is specialization, I, I felt like held quite a bit of promise um, early kind of in, you know, this this evolution where, you know, you, you had generalist managers uh, who kind of spread the gamut. And I think sec- specialization came uh, into play as a potential differentiator and people started hiring or, or funds started hiring uh, individuals with a lot of, you know, subject matter expertise. Um, I think that that wave uh, is not completely played out, but I think a lot of the differentiation on that point is is the value of that differentiation is really starting to wane. And it's just because I think 
everybody sees uh, that in order to uh, deliver consistent value and um, you know above average returns, I think you need to understand sectors at a much more fundamental level. And that's something that I think generalist managers really struggle with. Um, you know, being able to, to identify, um, you know, when you've got a handful of parties chasing after the same asset in a you know broadly marketed auction, um, cost of capital and differentiation of cost of capital is, you know, is nil. Um, subject matter expertise helps in really identifying kind of those additional value creation levers that are going to help you know get you to that above average return threshold. And so I think people recognizing that have, you know, built their their teams with that subject matter expertise in mind and that specialization in mind. I guess if I think about where are we headed, and I, I think I draw a lot of cues from private equity as a general asset class, and you look at how that segment um, and asset class has evolved, you know, really over the, the last you know, 30-ish years. It was not dissimilar from what we're living to today, but I think what the private equity space has, has embraced for a while now is really post-acquisition value creation uh, and operating executive talent. And I think that the managers uh, that em- that started that, uh, uh, I guess, adoption process, like GIP, uh, to name one, for example, uh, I think started the wave, but I think that that's where a lot of managers now are headed. Um, and so I think, you know, that's what I'm going to see. I think I anticipate seeing more of in the future, which is, you know, not only having fund a fund with sector specialization uh, and uh, you know, investment professionals that come from, you know, either operating roles or, or spending a lot of time in industry, uh, but increasingly, um, you know, growing ranks of operational talent, uh, you know, and that will, they may be formalized or that might be, uh, adjunct and advisory. Um, uh, but I, that's where I see differentiation heading. Um, interesting. Um, and then another uh, part about this has been the uh, convergence with the uh, terminal and B market, um, which has been, um, again, I don't have the leverage loan volumes for Holdco for uh, infrastructure-related buyouts, but um, there's been multiple more this year and last year relative to previous years. Um, and uh, each one's created sort of a unique test. Um, and what happened um, in this quarter was two very big deals pricing and pricing really well. Um, this being the $2.55 billion loan underwriting um, or backing, sorry, uh, Brookfield's buyout of Genesee in Wyoming, the global railroad operator, uh, and um, IFM. Doing a two point two, uh, sorry, doing a buyout of Buckeye Partners. That loan backed by a two point two five billion dollar loan. Uh, both loans uh, rated uh, in the BA range, uh, double B range. Uh, both loans uh, pricing uh, tighter of expectations. Um, and Buckeye Partners again uh, got such a strong reception that the bond offering got scrapped, and they were able to upsize the bank loan to its current level. Um, and both uh, loans overall priced um, inside of L plus three on uh, on the margin. 
So really strong performances in the syndicated market. Probably goes back to your point about defensive investments really um, uh, pricing strongly here. But what's your view on the, the left loan market and how um, infrastructure funds think about pricing these deals? I mean, these were obviously very much at the higher end of um, the sector and they priced really well. So that could be a, a good harbinger of some other deals. Or the question is, is there enough deals that are going to fit that remit too? Um, so anyway, putting a couple of jumbled questions out there, but um, what are your thoughts on uh, on this latest trend? No, look, I, I think it speaks to um, uh, uh, increasing focus and concentration on quality assets, right? And I think good credits, given where we are in the overall economic cycle um, and leverage cycle, I'm, I'm not surprised to see uh, oversubscription um, and tightening of terms for kind of larger opportunities with stronger teams uh, that are defensive. Um, look, you know, both of the deals that I think you mentioned have uh, different uh, secular fundamentals. You know, Zao, uh, as we chatted about, I think, you know, is a, is a great example of, uh, you know, uh, uh, an asset, uh, a company with a very strong team, um, phenomenal track record of, of acquisitive growth um, that has, you know, many more innings left in it. Uh, and it's going to be keyed off of kind of the overall underinvestment in, in kind of the digital space. And I think um, the Genesee opportunity, um, look, it's similarly, it's a, it's a uh, team um, uh, that has demonstrated, uh, you know, a, a great um, uh, set of experiences in, in delivering more alpha in, in kind of a, a, an overall sleepy kind of asset. Uh, sector, right? Mm. Uh, I think there's a lot of uh, fundamentals and, and trends that I think will benefit Genesee um, going forward. You know, I think precision railroading being primary and, and you know, having a large platform of scale with um, a strong financial backer and strong capital structure, uh, I think is only going to mean that there's probably going to be more opportunity for that asset to outperform. Um, so, you know, I don't think size alone is – because both examples here are, are significant. Um, I don't think size alone is, is the biggest contributing factor to uh, financial uh, success or, or really having an oversubscribed opportunity. I think it's just more do you have the right team? Uh, are you well-timed in the cycle? Um, uh, and, uh, and, you know, how, what's your story um, and what's your point of differentiation? Yeah, and to your point on Zio, it uh, is going to be a much bigger test in the market, which again we're expecting by the end of the year. But it's supposed to be five point nine billion dollars in net debt hitting the market. Uh, Goldman and J.P. Morgan are the arrangers. Um, this is, of course, to back uh, Digital Colony and EQT Infrastructures buyout of Zio. Zio, Zio excuse me, is a uh, obviously a global fiber operator with a lot of uh, you know strong concentration in the U.S. Um, of fiber assets. Um, and that leads us into um, my next question about technology and how it's going to dictate um, the way you guys invest uh, moving forward. Um, you know, obviously the demand for data uh, and connectivity is what's driving all this, the limitless demand. Uh, but beneath that, obviously, there are, um, you know, defining infrastructure characteristics. Uh, data centers is more pronounced. It's usually around a 10-year term. 
uh, and you're looking at syncing up with the Googles and Microsofts of the world that are trying to expand their data footprint, which expands every second we talk here, Brent. Um, and then connectivity or fiber um, also continues to be in demand as well as what we've seen by these deals. But there's a lot of these deals that have already taken place uh, already across the digital spectrum. Um, where, where do you think it's going to go next? I mean, do you think there's going to be more roll-up of fiber companies? Do you think there's newer technologies that are going to become part of this? Um, I know Edge Data Center has been talked about as a bigger growth model story because of um, how they're just smaller, more nimble, or closer to the customer. Um, what, are, what are some of your thoughts around this? The reason I, I think um, uh, our strategy has a lot of uh, thematic conviction here is I, I, I think that, um, as you said, uh, you know, John, the, the creation of data uh, is happening at such a rapid clip. I think, uh, you know, I forget what the statistic is, but I think over, you know, 70 hours of video is uploaded to to YouTube every minute of every day. Wow. Um, and uh, I think the customer preference and customer experience now has changed so dramatically. I mean, I, I remember when, uh, you know, we were the, at the early uh, development of the Internet and, you know, I think you had a 56 or 28K modem and, you know, uh, dialing up was, a, was something you were willing to do. I think latency right now and, you know, the... I think attention span of users uh, and the, the requirements for on-demand everything I think have changed the need for um, more co-location uh, and likely more computing power closer to where people sit. Right. Um, you know, I think that there's been a, a massive uh, development and in, in investment in those major metropolitan areas where hyperscale data centers, fibers kind of been built out. But I think to really power uh, the, the digital infrastructure of the future, whether that's you know 5G, uh, which is going to need uh, more distributed antenna systems and more computing power, um, uh, or whether that's on the edge, uh, to really enable IoT and autonomous vehicles, where you know if you really want to power on a, a vehicle autonomously, you can't have any latency, right? There can't be any delay. So increasingly, you're going to have to really build more of a backbone in those kind of tier two, tier three cities. Um, I think that that's a, that's kind of the next wave of where I see you know meaningful amounts of further consolidation and reinvestment. Um, and I think when, when you look at some of the things that we've been focused on, uh, some of the assets that we've acquired, um, I, I think it's it's really kind of with that with that in mind. We really want to get to the forefront uh, here before the market a becomes too crowded, and b before uh, the major consolidators in the space really kind of awaken to the prospect um, and and really start you know spending a lot of money and time. Um, mm kind of getting getting their fingers deeper into kind of some of these other markets. Yeah, there's obviously that competition out there where you see the Googles and Microsofts of the world just going directly to cities. And, you know, you're the, the comptroller and Google's calling you up. You know, sure, you'll take that call <laughs> any day of the week. Um, so that's always out there. Um, we've seen a couple of those initiatives. Uh, also, Brent, obviously on the, the PPP front, you've seen a couple of uh, state initiatives out there to get uh, rural broadband out there um, as like a, a major need, um, you know, which we've seen sort of take place solely over the Kentucky 
Wired uh, project, um, but there's been some other initiatives behind that uh, as well in um, in Pennsylvania and uh, Georgia, I guess, as it's been out there and in North Carolina. So that's been another sort of facet to this. But obviously, I think some of these state initiatives are probably moving a little bit slower than where um, you guys are on one tier. And then Google and Microsoft are on another tier in terms of getting these um, capabilities up to snuff. Um, uh, in any case, um, I think uh, just wanted to sort of close out talking about macro trends. You know, what, what do you think is going to be really um, the big things that we should be looking forward to in 2020? This is, uh, sorry, I'm using looking forward to loosely in quotes. Obviously, there's fears about recession and job growth slowing and all that kind of stuff. Um, we have a presidential election to deal with next year as well, which has already started to take place um, if you watch CNN 24 hours a day. Um, what's your thoughts on um, mac- the macro environment uh, for 2020? I think that there's um, what I hope uh, happens is that um, a lot of the noise that surrounded 19 um, gets resolved. Uh, and so noise around Brexit, uh, noise around Asia um, and what's happening in Hong Kong. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, uh, firming up our trade arrangements with um, with our allies, I think, is, is going to bring a much needed visibility to the market and hopefully more business investment, um, which I think will benefit a lot of uh, a lot of segments that we focus on. Um, sure. I, you know, look, I, I would say that there's significant, not significant, but I'd say that there's a fair amount of risk overhanging everything right now. And it, I think the, the forms it'll take is one is just an overall correction. Um, you know, when you look at historic uh levers that the government has used to to stave off uh, corrections and recessions, you know, we're, we're out there using them right now, whether that's rate cuts or, or tax abatements. It's not a whole lot left uh, in the gun. So um, w- what the catalyst might be that causes one, I think that's the, that's what we're, what I'm looking to on the horizon. But I'm hoping that we, you know, stop self-inflicting a lot of the damage and really start putting some of these open items really to bed. Um, I think interest rate risk is something um, longer term that I think we spend some time thinking about in terms of uh, portfolio construction, um, but also just the return environment. Um, you know, we, we, and this isn't a 2020 um, perspective. This is probably a three to five year horizon perspective, but that's, I think asset valuations have been bolstered by, you know, just an incredibly cheap environment. Uh, and when you have um, negative rates in a lot of geographies or, or near zero rates in a lot of geographies, it causes, I think, behavior that um, that I, I query if it would exist if we were in a more stabilized, normalized rate environment. Yeah, and sure. so... Uh, that's something I think we will have to watch. And that, that that's not infrastructure no, specific. No, no, I think no. that's across all asset classes um, and how that reverberates to, through to consumer credit and consumption. That's something I think we're going to be um, uh, watching. And, you know, look, I think the last thing is just around armed conflict. I think that the, the likelihood of that is probably low. Um 
you know, but look, 2020, given its importance, um, uh, uh, you know, in terms of the reelection, and you look at at levers that have been pulled in the past to um, to create, um, you know, I'd, I'd say more support around an incumbent. There's just things I think that that given how important uh, getting reelected is, um, not only to this president but to all presidents, I think that it just sometimes leads to uh, behavior that um, it, it, you know creates uncertainty. So I think that we're going to have to watch and, and see what happens here. Terrific, uh, Brent. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the program today. Um, thanks for tuning in to the uh, listeners out there, and we will. Uh, see you for the December edition of the podcast, uh, Burke Out.